it's it's almost as if we've forgotten the very rules of our own thinking, of our own branding, which is you need to differentiate. You need to break out. You need to be have a point of view that not only might not be right for everybody, but in fact, if, if brought to life in a way that is attractive, or at least unignorable, can draw more of the right people to you. So you want to purposefully unlevel the playing field, but towards your brand and in your favor. And I think too often agencies have forgotten that. This is Brand Story, a podcast celebrating the stories of real people who are making an impact on brands, business, and the world around them. Welcome to Brand Story. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Kristen Cavallo, CEO of the Martin Agency. The Martin Agency is one of the top advertising agencies in the world, and they partner with clients like CarMax, UPS, and Geico, just to name a few. And you've seen their iconic work literally everywhere, unless you live under a rock. Kristen became the first female CEO in Martin's 52-year history and since becoming CEO in 2017, she's overseen double-digit growth, and her team at Martin has won Adweek's prestigious Agency of the Year Award two years in a row. Hi, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here today. I'm really excited to talk with you again. Good. I think we're going to have a blast. So when you became CEO of Martin, I know you oversaw a lot of cultural growth and change. How did you go about selecting your leadership team? Because it looks a little different than most leadership teams. It does. It was one of the first things that I did. um, And I had really two hopes or desires when doing it. First is that I believe in the diversity dividend. So the diversity dividend basically is loads and loads of research done by multiple different companies that have all stated that a diverse leadership team leads to higher morale, higher margin, higher returns. And... um, And I thought, I'm a stats major, who am I to argue with loads and loads of research? Uh, Also, it's one of the few things in that moment that was within my control, to be quite honest. So I thought, all right, I'm going to have a diverse leadership team. And so I selected people that I felt were representative of that. I doubled the number of women, added the first people of color, um, and, and went marching forward. So that was the first aim. The second was um, that... I did not want a leadership team of that was harmonious in thinking, meaning I built in a level of tension. Um, maybe you know, Abe Lincoln talked about it being a team of rivals. I don't know that I would go so far as to say we were a team of rivals. I, I don't believe that at all. But I will say I have a mix of idealists and pragmatists. And I do that on purpose because I feel like the balance is important. Um, and there, there would be a sense of potentially blind spots if we were to operate with only one way of, of thinking. It would certainly be easier um, if I only put in people that were idealists. It would, it would be a lot of fun and it would be in many ways easier, but I think we would have probably stumbled upon ourselves a handful of times. And so um, at any given time, it's usually there are three idealists, three pragmatists, and two tiebreakers, but sometimes it can feel like five on three. The right. idealists <laughs> outweigh the pragmatists. They have loud um, voices too. Yeah, and so, um, but I tell you, I think it's I think it's worked well. While it's been sometimes hard on us, I think we are. Um, I think we've probably done better by the agency because of it. Yeah, I bet. I think you probably set yourself up for an awful lot of healthy debate. We do. We like a lot of healthy debate. 
That's a fun way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, if you have a, if you have too many pragmatists, you're just going to cut to the chase, and you're not going to have those that focus on inspiration. So I think that that kind of balance that's really admirable. I love hearing that. Well, you know, it's funny when I was growing up. One of the I was told earlier on in my career I'd probably never make the C-suite, and one of the reasons that the person gave me was they said when you walk up to bat, you go for a home run every time. And sometimes you need to learn that being getting on base is really valuable. And because you have 400 people following your lead and they all have probably three people at home, you need to be more measured sometimes in your ambition. And I find the words measured and ambition sometimes hard to put together in the same sentence. <laughs> sure. So I thought, okay, well, I think I, I think I want to be in the C-suite. I'd never thought I wanted to be a CEO. In fact, I knew I didn't want to be a CEO, but I did have ambition to be in the C-suite. And so I thought, if I know this about myself, then I should, um, I should protect my flank side, so to speak, and make sure that I have a balance of that pragmatist perspective in my ear um, so that I can weigh all the options and know when I'm ignoring them or when I need to really give thought to what they say. That's very smart because a great the mark of a great leader, I think, is someone that surrounds themselves with people who are better at them at things that they're just not as good at. So it sounds like you've done that because if you have the energy and the ambition and you want to hit a home run, you need those other people to balance that energy. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. So what do you, I wanted to ask you this, what is the worst thing and what is the best thing about being a CEO? The worst thing, I'll start with that. The, the worst thing, and it's, and this is probably only true of advertising. I mean, I, I've never been a CEO before this and I've never been a CEO in any other industry, but I would say that in advertising, the higher you go past a certain level, um, the more removed you are from the work. And so um, I sometimes don't see the ads until you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I try to see as many of them as possible before they go out. And my executive team meets every other day. We did meet every day during COVID. We meet every other day. And so we're all talking about the work a lot. I think we meet much more as a leadership team than most leadership teams I know. Before COVID, it was every other week. Now, then during COVID until just recently, it was every day. And now it's every other. But we have a tech stream that goes on all day long, every day, all weekend. Um, but I would say that I miss, I miss sometimes strategizing about brand problems. I am a strategist by nature. And I love meaty, juicy business problems more than anything. And um, for the most part now, the, the juicy, meaty business problems are more my own and they are less um, client, you know, forming. And so I, um, I miss that. I would say the best part is that I am not an incrementalist. And when I took over the company, I would say it was a time where there was a lot of emotion running. And, um, and the benefit of that was that more people wanted change than I think people normally do. I think humans are normally resistant to change. And I came into that position in a moment when people were demanding change. And that had has been probably one of the most invigorating feelings of my career is to have three, 400 people all wanting something that you can define as future setting and not feeling the obstacle of incrementalism behavior. It's incredibly, I don't know that unless I just keep 
only going into crisis moments. I don't know that I'll ever have that again in my career. So there's always this natural tension between maybe where um, an ambitious thinker wants to go and kind of a conservative thinker and, and then measuring the risk and reward of that. Um, but in that moment, those first two years, everyone wanted change. And it was like, um, it, it was like being, I, I felt like Tom Brady <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm running into the Super Bowl with, doesn't matter if I'm the Patriots or the Buccaneers, like the, one of the best teams in the entire NFL and feeling like this is our moment and this is my moment. And I've never had that experience ever. Well, what a perfect fit for your for your way of looking at things and your talents because, you know, being able to shoot for the fences. Maybe relating myself to Tom Brady? Yeah. Like, there will be a lot of people who see this afterwards. <laughs> I think the football <laughs> analogy, whether it's Tom Brady. I mean, he is the best of all he time. He is the best of all time. I've tried to put myself on par with that. You so. know, I think from your track record and knowing your work and t- talking with you, I'm I'm fine. Okay, with that. you're good. That you're works good for me. Last I got your back on that one. You know, I love the I love the analogy of being a CEO and being a quarterback because it really is very much like that. You know, and you don't get to be in the trenches all the time, but you do. It's very important that you pass the ball perfectly to others and that you keep things moving forward. You know, so. Good for you. And, you know, the one of the things I wanted to ask you about is Martin is different on the brand side. You have, uh, tell me a little bit about Fight and Visibility and how that came about. Oh, I'm glad you asked that. So um, I actually believe, and I think this is, I wouldn't say counterintuitive to the industry, but I do think it's under leveraged in our industry. So most ad agencies treat themselves like a blank canvas. And that is often because clients want to know when they come to an agency that you're going to be able to take their brand DNA and their brand voice and put it in the advertising, not your own stamp, right? right? And they want to know that you have um, a lot of voices and a lot of range within your company so that you can tap into who they are. Um, And I think that's true and fair and right and valuable. But I think what often sometimes gets lost in that is that agencies fail to brand themselves. They fail to express a point of view about how brands grow. And what happens is oftentimes all the agencies look very similar. We all have great case studies. We all have a process. A lot of times our processes are similar. Um, we all have, we all bill the same way. A lot of times our fees can be quite similar. And what happens in those moments when you've removed the differences is that the only way you get chosen is in a spec pitch, meaning you have to show all the ideas for free, which is insane. And, and it's a game of inches because when you're playing against the best on any given day, someone can have a great game. Right. And so, um, it's, it's almost as if, we've forgotten the very rules of our own thinking of our own branding, which is you need to differentiate. You need to break out. You need to be, have a point of view that not only might not be right for everybody, but in fact, if, if brought to life in a way that is attractive or at least unignorable can draw more of the right people to you. So you want to purposefully unlevel the playing field but towards your brand and in your favor. And I think too often agencies have forgotten that. And what sadly happened is that they become interchangeable. And so we had this point of view about the diversity dividend. 
which was rooted in this idea that we really wanted to work with, we wanted to be a diverse leadership team, we wanted to be a diverse agency, and we wanted to work with clients that held that same belief. But then also, it's a double entendre, because um, the truth is, the sad truth is 84% of advertising goes unnoticed, which is a horrible statistic. If I'm a CFO, and I'm trying to give you an ad budget, and you're coming to me and you're like, I want whatever, $40 million, I'm going to say to you, well, 84% of that is going to be wasted. Like, why would I do that? Yeah. Um, and the truth is, it's because of the with the role of social media, that the metrics have changed, meaning it used to be that awareness drove sales. And that's when people would pay for eye level shelf space. So if you're in the grocery store, and I'm reaching to grab the cereal that is at my eye level, or the, you know, bottled drink or whatever that's at my eye level, or if I'm reaching into the, the you know, grocery case and I'm getting out Chobani, I'm buying that eye level. Today, um, I can know Coke. I can maybe even prefer Coke over Pepsi, but I don't drink either one. So today, the relationship, the correlation between advertising, I mean, between awareness rather and sales still exists, but it has been diluted. Today, the most accurate predictor of sales success is actually relevance, and relevance is measured in conversation. Yeah. Um, what we know is that the most talked about brands grow two and a half times faster than their competitive set, and that a 10% lift in conversation is equal to a 3% lift in sales. So what that means is I have to fight invisibility with my work. I need to make sure and guarantee to my clients that they're not part of the 84% that may be factually true and correct, perhaps my toothpaste really does get you 10 times whiter. Um, but I deliver that message in such a forgetful way that no one remembers which toothpaste actually gets you whiter. Or I have to aim and almost ask to be held accountable by my clients to be in the 16%, which means they also have to trust us that sometimes the wrapping that we have to use to get that attention might make them uncomfortable because you want to stand apart. And what we found is there are a lot of clients that want to be right, but don't actually have the stomach for standing apart. Yeah, or they want their proof points to lead the argument and yeah. lead everything, but they're afraid of the, the somewhat crazy idea or the out there idea. And you can have your proof points lead. Geico, 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. Now 15 seconds can save you 15% or more. I don't mind leading with a very rational fact, but you have to wrap it in such a way that people talk about it and remember it and remember it as Geico. In fact, last year, we were awarded in the top five best Super Bowl spots of the year, and we didn't run a Super Bowl spot. <laughs> That's so great. We saved millions of dollars, but the fact is when people were queried, they thought, oh, I bet you Geico is in the Super Bowl. In fact, we just did a survey that found more Americans know the words to scoop there it is than the national anthem. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Kind of sad, but also kind of awesome. Well, <laughs> yeah. awesome for Geico. <laughs> right. It is awesome for Geico. And the Geico work, you know, I know you've been their agency for a very long time and the relationship is amazing. But the work all the way across the body of work is consistent and memorable and edgy and different. And the voice of it, you know, uh, people get afraid to use humor and they get afraid to entertain as part of advertising. Yeah, you're exactly right. They have their own YouTube channel, as many brands do, but their YouTube channel has more subscribers than many of the brands that you and I would say we profess to love. Um, I won't list them all here, but I would say some very high profile 
brands. And that what that means is that people are tapping into that to watch those commercials because they are more than a car insurance company. They are, in fact, an entertainment company. They just happen to sell you car insurance or home insurance or renter's insurance or boat insurance or motorcycle insurance. Um, but they really value their consumer time yeah. and energy. And therefore, they make sure that they earn it. And I think not enough clients do that. I agree. And I think th- something you all do with them extremely well is delight clients, you know, the, the audience. Uh, you know, the, I think some of the only advertising I honestly look forward to seeing, if it's coming on, is like, oh, here's Geico, everybody be quiet. Yeah. You know, because I'm a fan, I've been a fan for years because of how creative, but also just clever and pleasant and fun. And, you know, sometimes that rapper gets overlooked for purpose or for, you know, message that's going to, you know, that's going to be important, quote unquote. You're right. So good for you all for, you know, the work you do. There's a reason you have agency of the year two years in a row, you, you know, and the growth that you have. So I want to ask you a question, you know, part of what you all do, your mindset, and I think a lot of this comes from you and, and obviously the entire team, is you take some real risks, you know? So when you take risks, do you think of the odds of failure? Well, you know, I'm a stats major, so I do love it. I think one of the reasons that statistics appealed to me is, um, honestly, I read Nancy Drew as a child and I, I found that whole kind of just process of discovery and figuring things out to be uh, enthralling and fun. And so I love the idea of stats. But um, so I do think that I will assess the odds of something. But what I've learned in the past couple of years that I don't think I thought about or knew before, maybe I changed, um, was that I've grown comfortable moving forward with roughly 60% of the odds in my favor versus it needing to be 80 or 90. And I've also learned to be move comfortable with only 60% of the information. I heard this wonderful quote the other day from Ulysses S. Grant that said, anything is better than indecision. Um, You have to decide. If I'm wrong, then I can go do the other thing and um, and, maybe that'll work. But to not decide wastes both time and money and that in fact may ruin everything. And I think one of the keys to our success in the last two years was the fact that we were decisive in the middle of a lot of storm. You know, none of us had ever been in that scenario. Really, the production of commercials was the hardest thing to figure out in COVID, was how do we produce something virtually or sending cameras to people's homes when you can't get on planes, when you can't have the celebrities or the actors with you, when we can't be in the room, um, when we're offshore a lot of the time. So we really had to, we could have easily been paralyzed. I'll say it that way. And in every case, we chose that we had at least 60% of things moving in our favor. We went for it. And what we found is that we were more capable than we ever thought we might be. And I think that's one of those life lessons that I will take with me from here moving forward, um, regardless of how, how I choose to spend my work life. I will take that as a life lesson. Well, that's a great life lesson. I have written on my wall in my office over there, make a decision, any decision. The worst thing you can do is hedge. Yeah. Now, I will say, I think I am fortunate in the sense that advertising as a as a vocation is it attracts people who um, a are hired to change something and are so they're they're open to transformation. And in fact, that's usually the assignment. And they are thick skinned. 
because things are constantly yeah, very dying. And so yeah. in terms of their ad ideas, and so they're resilient um, and they're willing to stand alone. And I think, I think I'm fortunate in the sense that if I was running a company, a different kind of company, um, I might not have a staff. I mean, maybe if I was, you know, running a hedge fund, I would have similar people, not to say that we're gamblers, but I would just say if you have, you'd have a certain mix of, um, of bravery, but I, I think advertising leans towards bravery because of the resilience, because of the openness and transformation um, focus that I probably, it was easier to lead people forward with 60% than if for say, I was leading a bunch of other people who might feel less confident in the middle of a storm to bet on themselves. I am surrounded by people willing to bet on themselves and willing to bet on each other. Um, not always do we do it as well as we could, but that is, I think that is actually my primary job now is to help remind them to bet on each other and remind our clients to bet on us and remind us to bet on our clients. Man, that's amazing to hear because, you know, the nature of creativity is that it's always really creative people are usually very fearless or very brave at least. And, you know, all great things come out of being locked in a box. You know, you, you have to have a challenge and a wall to get over. Right. So creative people love that. Yeah. And, you know, if you wait for 90% safety, the world has passed you by. That's exactly right. So, you know, that, that comes, there's a lot of like industries and people and clients that have, you know, fear of like, oh, trying something new and different. It's very scary. It can be very scary for people. So how has fear impacted you? And where is that line for you? Like, where's the line between fear and adventure? You know what? It's, it's a, such a good question um, because I, sometimes people will say to me, oh, you're fearless. And in fact, Steve, that is 100% not true. Like, um, I am incredibly motivated by fear. And, and, I, and, and I know that makes it actually sound positive. But I will tell you, fear for me is a, um, it is a close ally and it is a, it is also a close, um, you know, devil in my ear. It is, um, it is something that I know affects my psyche. And so, um, I have tried to learn to live with it. And so when I'm not at work, I will purposefully choose to do things that, um, I am scared to do because, I want, I believe that if I get to the end of whatever that thing is, that I will have learned to trust myself or my gut, or I, I do put my faith in others. So, um, my son and I hiked Kilimanjaro and we got potty water certified, open water certified. And recently I hiked this trail called the Salkante trail into Machu Picchu and all of them, I would tell you, I was a hundred percent unprepared for, I mean, like that I, I'm not, um, I am, I'm, I'm a normal human. I'm not one of these people that, you know, does Ironman types of activities. I've never done a triathlon. Like I bought my hiking boots before going to Kilimanjaro. Like I bought them at REI. I bought hiking sticks. These were not things that I owned previous to this. And so some might say that's just a high level of stupidity, but I did, you know, I trained, I got a backpack and I put 30 pounds of laundry in it. And I got on the stair climber and watched Law & Order SVU. But I'll tell you, when we reached the top and my son turned around and looked at me and he had kind of tears in his eyes. Um, I will never forget that moment 
you know, for the rest of my life. I was so proud of us. Oh, I'll tell you what I dramatically underestimated was the descent. And um, for if I had done a little bit more homework, I would have found that most people that hike would tell you that the majority of accidents and, and injuries happen on the descent, not on the climb. And um, and that is no joke. I 100 percent have learned to value the descent of anything, I think, is actually in some ways harder than the journey up. Because, the you know, when we just said to ourselves three years ago, we're going to be agency of the year. Like we were like eight ball corner pocket, we're going for it. And we all marshaled together and we were like, yeah. And um, and then you get it. And then you're like, well, what now? And you see that like the adrenaline crashes and people split because they have like, they've got the accolade and they've worked really hard and it's always been in pursuit of this thing. And then to keep the team together, to keep, emotions going to, we had to set another goal and then another goal um, in order to continue to have that momentum and that hunger, I think. Um, and so it's, I, I had underestimated, I think the importance of the descent in, in all of that. And I think that I've, that I've learned a valuable lesson. That's a great lesson. And it takes a great leader to get people through the descent. Yeah, I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm rooting for you guys for three years in a row. So you, you keep at it. It would, it would, we would be the first. I know. That's it why never I was, happened. it never happens. So I've got, I'm in your corner, but you know, the, to go back to your football analogy, that's why teams don't repeat Super Bowl wins very often. Yeah. Same exact reason. You know, the peak, peak experiences are hard on the descent. And, they are. Uh, You're exactly that's right. A great thing to, that's just such a great thing to learn. So what do you think is a trait of yours? that you used to think was a weakness that you now might think you've learned to value some. Well, that fear. That fear? That fear. Because now that, um, I mean, this is horrible. <laughs> We're going to tell you a secret. Go for it. I, I have found that I am a, I'm a better leader in times of war than I think I am in times of peace. And so I need that challenge. I need that that sense of overcoming the odds. I need that big, meaty, juicy business problem. So if what I'm trying to teach myself is it doesn't always have to come in the form of an adversary. Maybe it just comes in the form of a knot. Like maybe this business problem is just a knot and we have to find a way to untangle it just enough. It doesn't always have to be an enemy, right? But I have found that a lot of what does fire me up is um, having a tension that I can rail against. And um, so I would say that is a trait of mine that as I've grown more um, appreciative of fear in my life, I have learned how it can be a strong asset for me and not just a potential deficit. Or something just to overcome. It's something you can use right. and work with. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to look at it. As long as I don't necessarily assume that everyone around me is motivated the same way. I have to be conscious of the fact that I don't think we're meant to live in suspended states of fear, you know, like we have been probably since 2016. And so I think that, um, letting my politics squeak out a little bit. <laughs> sure. But, um, I think that because of that, I have to remember that other people might need security in order to propel forward and others might need a sense of safety in order to do their best. I tend to be at my best when I'm 
up against something that looks hard. But I have to remember that not everyone else is motivated the same way. And so I have to work within my leadership team to make sure that we provide a lot of both great ambition moments, but also the security and the safety nets to make you feel like we've got your back and that um, failure isn't dire, like your job's not on the line. Yeah, I think everyone's built very differently. And I, I can relate because, you know, having a background in theater and the chaos of that and being in advertising as well. I thrive on chaos sometimes, yeah, you know, I get really, when there's a big change or a problem, I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's and, go. Other, and I know some people are like, no, this is scary. I don't want to yeah. go. You know, and I always have to keep that in mind too, that like, yeah, I might get fired up when something changes, you know, not something on the scale of the pandemic. No one really enjoyed that much or is still enjoying it. But you know, the things that come, the problems that come and the challenges that come, I think there are certain personalities where we just get when it when it's sudden and it happens, I get yeah, it wakes me up and I'm ready to go. And funny, my last my last boss at my last job, um, Joe Grimaldi, he was the CEO of Mullen Low when I was at Mullen. And when I asked him, we had this really special leadership team. And it was a team that I kept thinking, like, how did he see this to put this leadership team together? I don't know that I would have I know that I wouldn't have seen it. And um and he said, Well, I looked for three things. I looked for people who smile when blinded by headlights. That was his oh, first I love one. that. Who have stable legs on unstable ground. And when the going gets tough, they paddle harder. Those were the three things I looked for. And I said, that's fascinating because those are more symptoms of character than yeah. they necessarily are something you'd see on your resume. And he said, that's because the only things I can ensure are that change is coming, that the bottom's going to fall out, and that... Every once in a while, something's going to come out you that you did not predict. And as leaders, there are a bunch of people depending on you not to get paralyzed in that moment, not to jump out and leave the boat and just head for the shore and not to um, live in fear, but to have stable legs and charge forward with a smile on your face because they will... they will follow your emotion. Colin Powell said the same thing. He said... Um, Somebody asked him to define leadership, and he said, leadership is when people follow you, if only out of a sense of curiosity. And I thought, I mean, that's so amazing, right? Like, what a great idea that people are like, I feel safe enough that I'm willing to follow her up this hill or down that hill or around this corner just because... I'm curious where we're going to go. And I think she's got my back. I mean, that's like the highest compliment I could ever hope to achieve. It is. You know, when someone sees like, wow, she's smiling in the face of this crisis and she has stable legs and she's, she wants to rush towards this. Okay. I'm, I'm interested. Let, yeah. Let's go. I feel right. safe. Yeah. I feel safe. Yeah. yeah. It's really inspiring when you have leaders like that. I think it's amazing. And you know, if you're in the advertising world or if you're in the marketing world in general or really the business world anymore. You know, very early in my career, I think I was probably naive about how much change I would face. But now having done this for, you know, 25 years plus, I I always expect change to come any day now. It's that's just how it is. So you have to get good at it. I think that's also the benefit of age. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because it it doesn't surprise you as much. You know, you're like, oh, this is one of those. I think when we're young, we're invincible. And we maybe think we control more elements than we do. And I think as we age, 
We, we, we come to the realization that we don't control as many things as we do, but we also learn that maybe fewer things are, as, are dire. Yeah, maybe it doesn't matter quite as much. Yeah, maybe we don't have to take everything that happens so seriously. So seriously, yeah. I mean, I was Googling the other day the top 10 worst times in history, and after I read them, I thought, we're not even close. <laughs> yeah, I know. And yet, if I, if I watch the news too much, I feel this sense of anxiety like, this has to be like the world's ending, the, world, the world's coming to an end. And then I Googled it, and I was like... Nope, nope, nope. There have been far worse times and we're still here. So this chapter of your life, which has just been a wild ride and you've accomplished so much, what would you name this chapter of your life? What do you, what do you think this is for you? Both personally and professionally, I would say redemption. Redemption. Nice. That's beautiful. It feels, um, it feels good to have... Um, to have walked through the hard stuff, not skirted around it, not run around it, but literally walked through that canyon um, and come out the other side better for it. Um, and I would say that this is this this is this is that chapter. Good for you. So what was it like for you growing up? I know when you were in college, you were a statistics major and how you got from statistics to where you are today. That's something I want to hear about. <laughs> But also just what was it like for you growing up and how did you, how did you get here? I'm an army brat. My dad's mil career military. Um, I'm the only daughter. I have two brothers. I'm in the middle, middle child. Um, my brothers would, would maybe argue this, but I'm telling you, I'm whole, I'm hundred percent true. I was not the favorite growing up. I think my dad had a lot more in common with my brothers. My younger brother went into the military and so he's an ROTC in college, uh, just like my dad. My dad taught ROTC, and so they um, they had a lot in common. I think, and my dad was not a believer in fairness. He was openly against fairness, meaning that um, he would set different curfews for my younger brother and I. I had to be in at midnight. Mike had to be in at one, um, and and or. Um, there were just different expectations. And I think for him, the role of gender was an allowable defense for why he would say that things in life are not fair. And I would rail against that. So I would tell you that I can draw a direct red line from those that desire for fairness, for that desire for not being... Um, cast either with a women's tea or um, either not be given preference or not be not be given um, the permission to be less than because of my gender. Um, and that is, there is a direct red line. And my, my, I have a wonderful dad, had a wonderful dad. He's passed away, but I would not, this is not an indication of his parenting. Um, but it was, in fact, I think everything he did, he did out of love and he did out of care. And and I'm not even sure, he, I think he's probably right. I mean, I do think different things happen to girls after midnight than sure. maybe happen to boys after midnight. So I do believe all of his instincts were born from a good place, but it very much um, made me yearn for fairness in life. And so like one of the first things that that we did when um, I had a female chief creative officer when I first became CEO. And I think at the time we might've been the only female duo leading an agency of our magnitude. And the first thing we did is did we uh, established equal pay. 
Good for you. And um, and it was one of those moments where, you know, neither of us had a lot of prep time. You know, people interview for jobs. We did not interview for our jobs. So um, I had 22 hours to prepare to be a CEO. And so I, I wasn't interviewing. I didn't have a 90-day plan. I didn't have a 30-day. I didn't have a 30-minute plan. Um, and then I begged Karen to come in with me, and she didn't have any of those plans either. So we sat down one afternoon, and we we're like, gosh, we've got about 30 minutes till our next meeting we should talk about what we want to achieve. And she brought up, she said, we should do equal pay. And I thought, oh God, that's brilliant. And she, we both immediately were like, yeah, it's the one thing we've always questioned in our own careers is where we paid fairly. And so I do believe, you know, whether subconsciously or consciously, I think that came from, from that youth of not feeling like things were equal. Um Absolutely. So I don't know. I I do think, but I also think the idea of running towards burning buildings um, also came from my dad. I think people that choose a a life in the military and he, you know, he volunteered for Vietnam. So he was actively choosing to walk towards conflict and trouble, not to walk away from it. And I think he inspired in the three kids that same sense of um, that same sense of responsibility and accountability, which is that, um, you know, people are depending on you not to falter. And even more so, you will be valued and rewarded if you lean forward in those moments. And, um, and so he always was teaching us to think for ourselves. Like there were times it was super annoying. Like we would ask him what time it was. We didn't have watches. And he taught us how to make a sundial at the beach. And then we had to sit out there and wait for the shadows (laughs) Um, to figure out what time he was tired of us asking what time it sure. was. So we put sticks in the sand and then he taught us how to measure the shade. And we were like, Oh God, this is awful. But, and we've never used that again, but, but really I think what he was trying to do was teach us to think our way through problems and not depend on other people. And to be resilient. And you know, the, the growing up in the army too, I think prop, you know, as an army brat or, you know, traveling and all the things you probably did. It, you know, that really prepared you for some of these crisis situations because I'm sure you were meeting new people and being just rushed into new situations all the time. Yeah. I've moved probably 24 or 25 times in my life. Wow. So Yeah. Well, no wonder I mean, you're flexible. If anything, boredom and stability scare me more. The feeling of, um, I'm, I'm trying to teach myself to be content. Um, and it's a good thing because I'm actually really content in my life right now, but I'm really trying to not blow past that and and just enjoy it. Um, yeah, not get jumpy out of habit. Not get jumpy out of habit. That's exactly right. The uh, I think that fearlessness, uh, you know, that people think is fearlessness. You know, uh, I was thinking about this when you are talking about your dad. You know, someone that walks towards a crisis or walks into battle, people always go, oh, they're fearless. Well, no, it's actually they've learned to set their fear to the side and do it anyway. Right. Yeah, I'm sure my dad was scared. There's Hell no yeah. doubt about it. Any rational person yeah. would be. You're, unless you're a sociopath and crazy, you're terrified, but you're just doing it anyway because the other people are more important to you than your safety. Yeah, I read a, a quote once that said this, the goal is not to rid your stomach of butterflies, but to make them fly in formation. And so I think there's that sense of how do you use that anxiousness Maybe in your favor, right? Yeah, as a tool. How does it hone your skills? How does it keep your eyes and ears open? 
How does it make you think less like this and more like this? Yeah. At a very small scale, you know, I've been an improver for years and performed improv. And improv is terrifying. You're getting on stage not knowing anything you're going to say. You have to trust your subconscious. And honestly, you know, one of the things that I always, always help students try to reframe is people go, oh, I'm so nervous. You know, whether it's for a pitch or a performance, whatever venue I'm in. And I'm like, are you nervous or are you excited? Because there's mm -hmm. a very, very fine line between those two things. So just yeah. at least ask you th yourself that question because they feel the same. They feel the same. That's interesting. They're so, the, physiologically, it's the same thing. So, you know, uh, when I first started performing, I was terrified you know, and most people throw up before their first uh, improv performance. And I, I realized, hey, wait a second, I just got to start reframing for this, this for myself intentionally. And now I don't mind, I'll just get up and do it. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, I get the butterflies, I start to feel sweaty. And I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, it works. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Reframing. Yeah, reframing is incredibly important, I think, to be able to just get through challenging situations or face fears, do things you're uncomfortable with. Exactly. So you're in a position where you have to say no and you have to say yes and you have to do it quickly without a lot of information. So can you talk to me a little bit about saying yes and no? We say no quite a bit to new business opportunities, to um, sometimes to relationships. Um, and it's hard in this business because you're always waiting for your next phone call. And um, it's easy to say yes to too many things out of fear that the phone's not going to ring. Like this might be the last thing I get all year. Right. And we're all, I think advertising agencies suffer a little bit of that um, syndrome of I can change them, you know? So you sometimes take things that aren't right and you know, they're not right, but you kind of think I'll win them over with my cleverness or my creativity or my case studies or, um, or whatever. And the truth is, you kind of know if somebody's willing to stand apart. You know if somebody, if their culture values creativity. You know if they have processes that turn horses into camels. You know, you know certain things. Um, and you just have to look for those things. But I believe that, um, that you know, media, and by that, the larger form of media, movies, television shows, advertising, um, is the cultural storyteller of our time. And, um, and we have a say and um, we get to help form what ideas rise to the level of, of talk value. And, um, and that means we have a say in whether or not somebody is repeating or investing in someone, something, um, a belief. And I think we have to take that very seriously because like any tool, that same tool in the wrong hands could be devastating, right? So um, it, we really want to align with people that believe like we do that that is a huge responsibility, that we have the responsibility to tell better stories, to break stereotypes, um, to do some good in the world. And finding those clients uh, is not the norm, right? So if we know that 16% out of all ads are remembered, I would say of that 16%, some of those ads are done by the same clients over and over. There are some really, really great clients. So I would say maybe 10% of clients are the ones we'd be looking for. And so if you're saying no to 90%, 
um, we will do this in one of two ways. We'll either say no politely, we will defer them to somebody else, um, uh, try to connect them in other ways to others that we think could be a better fit. Because just because they're wrong for us doesn't mean they're bad people or bad clients. That just means it's not a cultural fit. Um, but my other hope is that by proclaiming what we are more strongly and consistently, that the wrong people will probably say, oh, that agency is not right for me. And more of the right people will put themselves in our orbit. And um, our clients are really great sources of recommendations. So our DoorDash client has been flat out phenomenal, um, as has our old Navy client. Both of them refer us a lot to people beyond our asking. Like they'll normally say, oh, I was with some industry people this weekend and we recommended you um, guys, which is the, the best form of payment on the planet. Yeah. You know? Isn't that the best feeling in the world? It is. It's, it's, um, it's, it's funny. Cause even in, even when one of the first things I did when I got to um, Martin is I, we looked at our KPIs from an HR perspective and it's interesting because a lot of, a lot of human resources groups and companies value um, retention because it's costly to go out and find new people, but not all people who've been here forever are great. <laughs> and not all people who've been here forever. And I don't mean great at their craft, but I mean, great for the company. I mean, some people are just bad apples and, and maybe it's time for them to go. Um, but because we're so focused on retention, we don't even ask ourselves, are we right for somebody's career anymore? Are they right for us? Are we right for them? And there are lovely ways of parting ways too. We can, give people incredibly long runways. We can help them find their dream job somewhere else. We can make them help make them clients, which would be awesome for us if they became clients. So um, I think that what we've shifted is from retention, either in clients or staff to net promoter score, which is I'm going to assume that I'm not going to have any client forever and I'm not going to have any staff member forever and so while I have you for this chapter in your life, however long it is, I just want to make sure that when you leave, whether it be a client going elsewhere or a client leaving their own company and going to a different company or my, one of my employees leaving, that they, when asked, would say, I would go work with the Martin Agency again in a heartbeat, or I would work with the Martin Agency again in a heartbeat. Because um, I think too often in business, we, we play short games, we play to quarters, and, um, and everything is so quarterly focused. And I think if you play into relationships and finding the right people, then you play a long game. And so it might be that something's not right for us right this minute, but if that client and I part ways favorably, or if that employee and we part ways favorably, chances are we will cross paths at some point again, and we will be thrilled about it. And, um, and so I just try to think for that from that perspective. I love hearing that. Uh, you know, having been doing this for as long as I have, most of our business comes from clients saying you have to work with these guys, and every single time it happens, uh, it makes me so happy. Yeah, and you know, it's all about the long game uh, it is. Yeah. relationship. You have to do the extra things and actually care. And as soon as a relationship is transactional, it's over. Yeah. And going back to your thing about purpose too early on, if we align on purpose with the client, then I don't argue, we don't argue as much about money. There are going to be some days when um, we're probably feeling a little underpaid. There might be some days when they're feeling they might be overpaying, but it, but when we're in the trenches together and we're doing something really big or really important, it all tends to wash out. And um, because I think we feel such respect and value for one another that it doesn't come down to that last penny 
or that last hour, which is where I think too often agencies find themselves is we're battling a game of inches over who had a better tagline on in some given day. I don't even think taglines matter today. Um, or, you know, who's, you know, half, half a, you know, penny cheaper. Uh, it, it just, those things, when you're trying to change the conversation out in the world, I think those are the wrong, sometimes the wrong metrics. Yeah. And you know, the, the way you're going about brand and the work you put out in the world creates attraction exactly and getting right. with those people that fit with you is so important because I think we've all in the industry tried to make a bad relationship work. And it's, that is a, just a, a, a march for diminishing returns. Talk uh, about losing money. Yeah. Losing money and losing time. Yeah. And this losing life force, you know, it's like a emotional loss and it's just too much. And it affects your self-esteem it does. too. Like you walk out and you think, I'm, I'm not capable. And the worst thing you can do in advertising, cause we're an idea business. Like we don't invest in machinery um, or things like that. We invest in human brains and confidence. That is, that is a hundred percent what we invest in. If someone is feeling confident, their ideas are better. And um, clients always ask me like, what's the best thing I can do to be a great client. And I always answer, say, thank you. Even if you hate the idea. Um, and every once in a while buy something just because, just out of risk, just because it keeps people dreaming. Um, and just like any kid, when you paint it and draw a picture for your parents, they want you to hang it on the refrigerator, whether it's not ugly or not, right? And I think, I think sometimes people just need to hear, thank you. That was really a lot of hard work and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And you know what? I'm gonna buy that activation. I think that's a little out of our comfort zone. That's a little risky, but you know what? It's only gonna live in the world for 48 hours. And I'm willing to take that risk or that, you know, that social post that's fascinating, but again, it's gone in a day. So, um, we're going to try it. And I think those two things keep people dreaming about your business, you know, and waking up with a great idea in the middle of the night. Yeah. It's a really, you know, it's a back and forth and it's a real relationship. And the more real the relationship is means you have to wake up actually caring about the other entity at the other people. And then, you know, if you really do that, if you, and it's not like a thing you're doing for money, if you're really doing it, then success just comes out of that because people know when you're in their corner for real and they know when you're just there for the money. Yeah. Our DoorDash client, our Geico client, I mean, they know that we want them to succeed and that we'll put blood, sweat, and tears into making it happen. And therefore the level of conversation we have with them and the, the level of trust that goes back and forth is just on a whole nother level. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when you get to that point with a client where the trust level is super high, that there's nothing better. So good for you all. And you know, the work you guys do is just, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's some of the best in the entire world and consistently the best. I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans. So you'll always see me out there rooting for you guys. So I have a couple final questions for you because I don't want to keep you all day. And the question I always like to ask, if you weren't the CEO of Martin, what would you be? What would you do? <laughs> I'm asking myself that a lot. Um, and I, I, I kind of think I always should. Like, I always said I was not going to keep this job forever. Um, I think that's a whole army brat in me, right? So I don't look for stability. I look for um, growth. And so um, when I hit the point where I feel like I'm not growing, then then I will then I will go. Right now I'm still growing. So, but I always ask myself that question: like, am I still growing? Is this still a fruitful relationship? Um, well, 
Here's my answer, but I will, I will, I will caveat the heck out of it with, um, I think I, it might drive me nuts and I could be really wrong. Um, but I would want to be in the UN. I would want to be in the United Nations because I feel like, um, those are really big problems that need really big solutions with a lot on the line. And, um, and, they, it needs our best thinkers and our best negotiators and our best compromisers and our best out-of-the-box thinkers. Now, the reason I caveat it is that I was talking with one of our clients whose father or uncle, rather, was the um, Secretary General of the United Nations for a while. And he said, the thing about advertising is that you get to see the fruit of your labor very quickly. I mean, in the scheme of things. And the hard part about diplomacy and, um, and, and even government policy is that if you get maybe one thing, one substantial thing done in four years, it's a win. And then you have to be cognizant of the fact that the next person coming in can undo it, you know, overnight. And I think I would find that I, in advertising, people are always undoing what you've done. So I, th- I think I could get past that, but I, I don't think the the costs are way higher. Yeah, they are. <laughs> We're yeah. Talking about you know um, refugees or, or or feeding the planet or saving the planet. Like I think I would have my heart broken um, more often in deeper ways, and I think I would find the lack of urgency. Um, even though I believe those topics are of the most urgency, I believe the speed with which that era area operates compared to private sector, I would find incredibly frustrating. But, um, but I've often thought like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the United Nations would be like where I would want to be like, it's game time. Yeah. I love how you're, you're, I think we'll always find you running towards the, the battle running towards the jungle. So good for you. That's like, that's really admirable. We'll see. If I'm like, in 10 years, if I'm still sitting here and talking about ads, you need to come call me out on yeah. it. Yeah, I'll find you and figure out what you're doing. And then we'll we'll have this conversation again because this has been, man, this has just made my week. This is so much fun talking with you. Um, so last question, because I got to get you out of here. Uh, if you would give your younger self any advice where you're sitting now, what, what would it be? <laughs> so many. Oh, my God. I mean, I never took a class in advertising in college. I'd probably be like, take that class in advertising. Um, uh, I would, I mean, some of it is so cliche. Like, I think I worried too much over what I studied and whether or not it would be a direct line to my vocation. And, um, it's really not, I mean, it's, it's, I would say, take a lot more debate classes, learn how to like, make sure you've mastered public speaking um, learn how to write because in a world of emails, like some people only know you by your written word. Um, so I would, I would, I would probably tell myself things like that. Um, it took um, becoming a single parent for me to be, I think, a little bit more ambitious in life. Um, so my son and I decided early on we would have more stamps in our passport than candles on our birthday cake, and so it meant that every year we had to go somewhere out of the country. Um, and we, we have, I mean, he's moved out now. He's 25. He lives in Colorado, but until all the way up until COVID, we did that. And even 2020, we did that. We went to Scotland right before COVID. 
Um, and I did passport stamp last year in 2021 in Peru, but, um, but the kids and I have done all seven continents. I mean, my daughter hit all seven by 13, like, and if I had been overly rational, I would have said, don't do that. I mean, there are some people who are just taking their kids to Disney in 13 and, and I'd never burdened myself with feeling like they, we have to see everything. You know, I just want them, I want to develop a taste in their soul for adventure. And then they can go back if they want. So I would take more chances. I would do things like that. Um, I would trust my gut more, but I, I mean, I've made some doozy mistakes. I mean, some really like knock yourself down on your knees, question all of your life decisions, um, mistakes, um, but gosh, did great things come out of them. So it would be really hard for me to go back and be like, well, if I hadn't done that, then this wouldn't be there. And so it's, it's, um, it's hard to look back and want to prevent much of the course of my life because I feel like life on the whole, I mean, I'm only 53, but life on the whole has dealt me a good hand, um, from where I am right now. And I am, very happy and I have great healthy kids and I am healthy and um, I am energized and intrigued by how I choose to spend my day and I have good friends. I mean, there's, I mean, knock on everything. I feel bad. I mean, I feel like, oh God, the shoe's going to drop. But um, if I had to go through everything to get to this, then I wouldn't change much. I would just tell myself to hang in, hang in. Even when things look dire, hang hang in. Yeah, I think your sense of adventure and your your ability to know that sometimes fear is a liar and to be able to overcome it is just so admirable. I'm totally stealing that line, fear is a liar. I'm going to quote the heck out of that. <laughs> well, good, because I think there's like 10 things you said that I'll be quoting. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, well, this has been such an inspiring conversation. I, I can't thank you enough for this. Oh, for me too. Thank you. It made my day. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story. Brand Story.